you know, I woke up with almost like an anxiety situation, kind of going like, we're way out here. Like, what if something goes wrong? You know, a helicopter can't just fly in and pick you up here. You know, this is going to require these guys that I'm working with to build a stretcher and carry me a long way. So again, the risk management bells were going off in my head that like you are, you're not in your own backyard anymore. You're somewhere totally different. And that Patagonia is that like everywhere. Welcome to the Sam Gash podcast. These are conversations with trailblazers, rule breakers, and those who pave their own lane and venture boldly into the unknown. By entering this uncharted arena, they inevitably stumble, yet they all display an ability to innovate and contribute, even when the odds are not in their favour. We skip over their highlights reel and go into the guts of who they are and what they believe in. I'm your host, Samantha Gash. And I'm an endurance athlete, a former corporate lawyer, and a social impact entrepreneur. It is my absolute privilege to create the space for these guests. If you found these conversations to be of value or have any feedback, please subscribe, rate, and review, and I hope you enjoy. Well, welcome to another episode of the Sam Gash Podcast, and today I have Brian Finestone with me. Uh, He hails from Whistler, Canada, and he is your all-round adventure man, an inspiring father, inspiring in how he chooses to enhance the bond with his son, who's 17 years old, Finn, and they do it through their sheer love of the outdoors, pushing themselves, adrenaline, and now the hunt of discovery, which we talk about in this conversation For over a decade, Brian was a ski patroller as well as a bike park manager in Whistler. This conversation is all about risk, reinvention and living in that dream job, which at that moment, this dream job for Brian is being part of the race management team for Eco Challenge. We speak about that so much more. He's a co-author of six guidebooks to skiing, mountaineering, um, hiking in Whistler, selling several hundred thousands of copies. This is a cracker of a convo and I hope you guys love it. to live in a place like this and you make sacrifices but it's totally worth it and you know a pandemic is a perfect example where you get your payback for those sacrifices because suddenly you you appreciate those decisions that you made and what you got for them that is exactly what i've been saying to a lot of my friends you know and i agree they were chosen sacrifices um but when it wasn't a global pandemic and there wasn't such a thing as remote working you know we would have to drive an hour and a half to get to the city to go and do our job or we'd have to drive two hours to get to the airport to get on a flight to go to another state to do a keynote presentation. All of that was inconvenient but we wanted to wake up in a place where we wanted to be. Absolutely. Uh, Those are words to live by and I think everybody is going to take a stock of what they have and, and decisions they've made and people may change their minds on what they do now that we've been through this pandemic. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. And I have just started rolling because sometimes I think it's like that chat before, you know, what we consider to be the official conversation that's always just quite insightful about the person as well. Um, But I've got to say, I don't think I've been so excited to speak to someone for a really long time. You have had a professional career that's very much been involved with your body, um, you utilising it, uh, as well as your mind as well. And you've spanned multiple roles. Um, could you give me a bit of a summary on the different hats that you've worn and the roles that you've done? Sure. So so I went to, to college to study the business of adventure tourism. And through that process, I met Kevin Hodder. And uh, that's where our relationship started as roommates and, and a cohort of classmates in this program. Um, when I came out of that program, I kind of uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I kind of thought I wanted to be a mountain guide and spend my time taking people into the hills and you know skiing and climbing and doing those kind of things. So I went down that road, and the stepping stones to that involved you know other guiding experiences like raft guiding, and, you know, and um, teaching avalanche courses and ski patrolling. And you sort of there was a prof at the school who who gave us this sort of you know chalkboard infographic. Uh, where you think you're going to do this one job, you're going to be a mountain guide, and it's going to provide all of your income for you. And then he painted the reality that you're probably going to do some guiding, and you're going to do some instruction, and you're going to teach some raft courses, and you're going to, you know, do some swift water rescue. And he sort of drew all these different income streams with the arrow, you know, to the dollar sign, and and it really kind of gave me that realization that there wasn't one 
thing that was at the end of this journey, that it was going to be multiple lines of income. And, and it's about finding what it is that you're good at and, and, you know, what works and, you know, the lifestyle that you want to live. And, and, you know, for me, ski patrolling was certainly a great stepping stone. And I fell in love with the concept of the avalanche rescue dogs, because I've always been a dog person. And so I went down that road and that kind of kept me in the ski industry side of things, uh, wintertime anyway, for a long time. So it wasn't, it was no conscious choice. It's really just been a follow your heart and follow opportunity and see where it takes you. I mean, I think you're speaking my language when you talk about multiple income streams. I think for any entrepreneur, and I think even more for the next generation, it's going to be about that. You're not going to be doing this one job, which gives you your bulk income, if not all, it's going to be, you know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur in create space, you need to have a couple of things because e.g. if a global pandemic happens, you have to become incredibly resourceful. So to set yourself up successfully at the very beginning, you would want to kind of create that in almost your business strategy. Absolutely. And and this was no strategy. This was uh, how much fun can I have and how much can I enjoy doing this and where does it take me? I I don't think I'm um, a deep enough thinker to have had a strategy per se. Yeah, but your prof did. (laughs) Your prof was aware that the realities of the adventure world is that you're probably not going to make all your income from just one thing. So um, I guess it's just evolved for you quite naturally. You know, you did both ski patrolling in Canada and the Swiss Alps and also the the work that you did in in the mountain bike park in Whistler for for both a decade. And I remember reading somewhere where you said, I've left my, you know, decade job as a bike pack manager and and a ski patroller to do what I feel like is my dream job. How about you tell me about what you thought your dream job was? Yeah, I mean, everything that I've done has been my dream job. I think that's that's the passion piece. And my parents were, you know, I grew up as an army brat and my, my mom was a, an elementary teacher and then she worked as a curator at a museum. And there was never pressure to, you know, earn a certain amount of money or, or follow a certain, you know, educational pathway. It was personal enjoyment. It was satisfaction with what you do and, you know, make sure that you are, you're, you've, you know, you're feeling good about yourself and feeling good about what it is that you do and give back when you can as you, as you move through your career. And, and they maybe even didn't vocalize that, but that was just the way that it was. So it kind of left the door open to do what we wanted to do. So I just, everything was my dream job. And, you know, a dream job is your dream, but every job has, a shelf life. And I, I tell this to people that work for me and, and it's a balance of, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. You know, and on the other side of it is I'm not getting paid enough to do this. And as soon as your scale even starts to tip into the, I'm not getting paid enough to do this side, you know, my advice is to, to reinvent yourself and find something else that will reignite that, you know, back to the, I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. So dream job, you know, being, uh, a ski patroller with an avalanche dog, you know, often we're the first ones on the hill or the last ones off the hill. And you have this beautiful, you know, gigantic ski resort all to yourself, you and your best friend, who's this dog that you have a bond that is not like anything else on the planet. That's an amazing feeling. But, you know, over time, you know, you look for other amazing feelings. And, you know, it was really rewarding being the part of the pioneering um, era of mountain bike parks. So lift service mountain biking wasn't really a thing you know, and and I was there right on the ground from when it became a thing and right through to its, you know, its current, um, you know, existence all over the world. But it got to the point where, you know, I could do it kind of with one hand tied behind my back. So it was looking for another opportunity. And and that's when Kevin came to me with this proposal to come and work with him on the eco challenge as it kind of came back, um, came rose like a phoenix from the ashes. In 2008, you were involved in a, a gondola accident, and it sounded pretty traumatic. What happened there? So the it was not it was the Excalibur gondola, which is the gondola that leaves the village and goes up onto Blackcomb Mountain. And there was a a flaw in one of the towers where water managed to seep into the tower. And during a cold snap, the water expanded as it froze, and it cracked the welds. And then the movement of the lift actually toppled that tower to the ground and the gondola collapsed uh, with a number of the cabins uh, falling from, you know, probably 30 meters to various surfaces, snow, trees, a bus shelter. And unfortunately, the one that I was in with my avalanche dog landed 
uh, in a parking space uh, on asphalt. And so I suffered some back injuries and um, some organ uh, damage. And uh, that kind of put me out. I was, I was um, off work for the better part of a year and then took another year to kind of be able to return back to sport and to function, you know, a, a fraction of what I was able to do before. And same with the dog. He required some, some new training. And we really never, we got back to functioning uh, as a team for the 2010 Olympics where we were deployed. So that was kind of, a, you know, the return to service for us was to be available for the 2010 Olympics. And then shortly after that, I retired the dog because uh, he still had on some ongoing issues. And I kind of realized that maybe that wasn't um, a great position for me to be in as an on-call rescue person if I was still suffering. And, you know, my worst case scenario would be to uh, respond to somebody else's emergency, uh, you know, and suffer myself out there and not be able to perform my function. So we stepped away from the world of search and rescue at that point. I mean, physically, that sounds, you know, incredibly, well, not great. What about mentally? Like when you kind of go through something like that, how do you get back in the game and, and do your job? Yeah, you know, and I, w- I was, I think I was smart. I, I sought help, which was, I think, the most important thing. And, you know, realized that there there is essentially um, going to be triggers. And there's a thing called an e-stop on a chairlift where, it's they have the yellow button and the red button. The yellow button is a service stop where they hit the yellow button. The brakes are applied with you know um, continuing pressure and the lift kind of grinds to a halt over five or ten meters. And then there's the E stop, the emergency stop, mm-hmm. which is the big red button, which clamps the brake on immediately. And what happens with an E stop is you know it's quite violent. And anyone who's been skiing for long enough has been on a chair that's had an E stop where the thing grind like snaps to a halt and then bounces up and down wildly. And, and that was the sensation I had the day of the incident when the, you know, it was that sensation as the, as the brake went on when the tower fell over and then it was the fall to the ground. And it took me a long time to be able to, you know, have trust, complete trust in, in chairlifts again. And, you know, some people probably would have walked away from the career and said, you know, I'm not going to ride those things anymore, but that I put so much time and effort into it. And I realized the chances of, that type of failure happening again were so slim that it was a risk I was willing to take because this was my career path summer and winter, you know, as a, as a wintertime risk manager, summertime, you know, bike park manager, it was, it was either do it or, or you're walking up the hill every day, which isn't going to make any sense. So every time I'm on a lift to this day and I experience an e-stop, it definitely, there is a uh, kind of primordial reaction where I, break into a cold sweat and the hair stands up on my neck and Mm -hmm. I don't like it, but it doesn't shut me down and make me need to just curl into a ball and go home, which was kind of how I wanted to react the first few times that it happened. So it, it took some time and it it probably the, the, the gift of time was the way to do it. So, you know, re-exposure to the stimulus over time to realize that it it was not a, a threat to me. Um, and now I can, you know, function as normal, essentially on, on chairlifts. I'm happy that you kind of share that because obviously, you know, people experience a whole range of trauma throughout their lives. Um, doesn't have to be, you know, in this type of accident. Uh, and that trauma can actually stop them from doing things moving forward because that fear takes over them. It, it, it takes over their ability to push themselves out of that comfort zone because they, they need security and certainty. And so do you think like the gift of time was what did it or were there other mental processes that you went through to also kind of move through that? Uh, I mean, there was probably a degree of feeling sorry my, for myself for a long time. And, and yeah, to give myself the license to do it again. I remember the first time I, you know, crashed on a bike again after that injury where, you know, where the, the doctors were saying, you know, you can't do this anymore. And I was like, well, of course I can do this. This is what I do. And that first crash and the first, you know, snowboard wipeout and kind of doing the self-check and realizing, look, nothing catastrophic happened. You, you didn't get broken again. You're not going to be, you know, going through rehab for another two years. Your body is at its new hundred percent and it's going to take another catastrophic thing for it to fail at that level again. So you can go back to the things that you do. So it was really those realizations that allowed me to kind of get back to it but there was definitely still some mental block in um, I'm not going to do, you know, trail running, for example, because when I run, my back tightens up and it feels terrible for, 
you know, days and sometimes weeks on end. And so it was a, you know, discomfort avoidance that kept me from doing it. But what I've now realized is that if you work through that stuff, you will adapt and you can carry on. So I feel like I finally crossed, crossed that threshold of being able to do anything that I choose as long as I put in the time and, and manage the body and the mind. doesn't matter what it is, I, I can accomplish it. Do you kind of utilize mentors or people who are experienced and well-versed in that space to kind of build up your confidence levels and skills? I, don't, I, I never thought that I did, but I guess I do. You know, and, and David Goggins, I, I read his book, I follow his social media, and you know, he calls it out. He just straight up says, you look at yourself, look inward, reflect on yourself, and you're the one that's giving yourself permission to bow out or to quit or to not push yourself. And his, his way of approaching that really rang true more so than anything else. So mentor, I don't, I don't know, but certainly influence. Absolutely. That, that was Mm -hmm. one, you know, and there, there's other influences out there. There, There's a a guy who his, his name is uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield. And he is the, was the commander of the International Space Station. He's a Canadian astronaut, and he he actually wrote a book called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. And it's probably one of the best books I've ever read. And he gives a lot of insight into decisions that are made and how we do what we do and why we do from his, you know, astronaut experience perspective. And I am not an astronaut and I, and I, um, my experiences are, you know, much different and the risks I've exposed myself to are probably not even close to what those uh, individuals do, but his lessons ring true nonetheless. And, you know, anybody who is looking for a good read, I would strongly recommend they read that book. That's awesome. And you know what? You don't, I, I really agree with that. Like you don't need to just look into your world to get, you know, motivation, um, insights and strategies. You can very much look into the, you know, the mental attitudes of people in a whole different um arena than what you're playing in. I remember during COVID, I found myself not even consciously um, reading books and watching films about other forms of adversity, Um, adversity that was far greater than really a global pandemic. And I remember thinking, you know, if these people can have coped through these situations, um, you know, through the Holocaust, um, situations that just were so extreme where people had to be in hiding. It was like, certainly, I can survive the challenge of this time right now. And I, I think it's a really good thing to do, like to look outward sometimes to go inward. Absolutely. And I think part of it is then that realization of, of what we've got and, and the resources we have at our, uh, you know, at our fingertips at any time and the number of people in your circle that are willing to help. And I mean, it can be, you know, your elderly neighbor who's willing to help and is, you know, whether that's, you know, babysit for you because you have to do something that, you know, requires some of your time or take your dog for a walk because you're, you know, experiencing an injury or, you know, help your kid get to an x-ray appointment because you've got some other previous commitment that you can't do. And, you know, those people in your circle don't always have to be heroes. They can be people that are regular everyday people where kindness is their superpower. And the more I, you know, grow and mature, the more I, I recognize kindness as the superpower in people. And, appreciate it and I'm willing to let down you know my guard and show vulnerability to accept the kindness of those people. I wanted to ask you um in 1992 and just to completely deviate into a completely different topic in 1992 you acquired your first home in Whistler which was a bus can you tell me about that? Yeah gosh um Whistler suffers from a (laughs) chronic housing shortage there's nowhere to live Rents are incredibly high. So as a new to town uh, kid that was coming here to, you know, work the winter and and snowboard and kind of live in the mountains, we looked everywhere and we just couldn't find something that we would be able to afford to do on the wages that we were going to be earning. So my friend Scott and I, who I'd moved out here with, uh, decided that we were going to look for an alternative housing solution. So we bought a 40-foot uh, flat front 1968 International Harvester school bus, which we parked at the Whistler campground. And um, that's what we lived in for that first winter. And that was kind of you know, I, like the plan was to live here and then drive the bus around and go to other places. But the tires went flat, the battery died, and I'm still here 29 years later. Oh my God. 
I mean, it kind of gives me those like eerie feelings of into the wild. How did you make it a home? Like, what did you do on the interior? I, you know, I think that what it was, we were, had been working at a summer camp and the the foreman of the summer camp uh, drove, like boated us back and forth every weekend to go up to Whistler to look for housing. And we'd come back and he'd ask us how it was and we'd say, oh, nothing, nothing this week. And then I think he pitched it to us. He said, well, I've got this bus that I was going to camperize and I've got the kitchen and I've got a, you know, captain's bed and I've got this and that. So, you know, I'll sell it to you for this really good price. And you know, it was a good deal. So we, we decided to go for it and he, it kind of came, the seats were already all pulled out of it and it had a driver's seat and then was just kind of full of junk. And so we camperized it, we insulated it, you know, eventually a wood stove went in, um, you know, yeah. And so like there was no can't, you know, it wasn't really something that went through our minds. This was a solution to the problem that we had. And we had, you know, I had a minus 20, rated sleeping bag so even if the heat went out and or the breaker tripped i I wouldn't freeze to death it would just you know be fine so it was kind of like a a year-long camping trip that was perfect and it it, uh it set the tone for adventure to come and and it was one of those things where you know if you think you're miserable now we'll think back to when the you know the dog water bowl froze overnight every night because it was too cold and that the dog had to sleep in your sleeping bag with you to stay warm so you know, it just, it's character building, as they say. Do you feel like it kind of gave those early lessons in like resourcefulness and learning to live simply? Yeah, I think it gave those lessons out of desperation. It wasn't by choice. It was more of a affordability mm-hmm. and reality situation. We, you know, we were not willing to get second and third jobs and be working around the clock in order to be here. We wanted to work one job, have our days off and have our yeah you know, evenings to, to ourselves and to be able to party and do whatever else we wanted to do. And that was the means to the end. It was really, you know, again, we're not deep thinkers. We were just, you know, opportunistic scavengers, if anything. I love the grit that can be seen in youth um, when they want to make something work, but on their own terms. You know, I'm thinking about your job as a bike park manager at Whistler Bike Park. So clearly you have stayed in Whistler, you love Whistler, you've ingrained yourself in the adventure space there. And you were in that role for a decade. Now, I've had a lot of my mates ride in that park and they've raved about it. I wanted to know how much of those trails did you create over your time there? So I took on uh, managing the bike park in 2007. Um, and at that time, uh, my predecessor, a fellow named Tom Prohaska, we call him Tom Pro, he had uh, started the foray into building the what we call the garbanzo zone so um the way the bike park works the lower mountain chairlift access is what we call the fitzsimmons zone the next kind of stack layer on top of that is is garbanzo and then we have the peak area above that so when i took over lots of the development had been done in the fitzsimmons zone and the first few trails had been built in um, the garbo zone so kind of my legacy was to infill the rest of the garbanzo zone uh, finished the Fitzsimmons zone, and then I was there for the expansion into the peak and into the creekside zones, which we uh, built over the last yeah. couple of years. I mean, is it kind of, do you feel like this creator when you're, uh, you're like dreaming and scheming, okay, as a mountain biker, I want to experience this, because you are creating an experience for people. Um, so how much of it is like creativity versus like the technicality of it? You know, that's a really good question. The it's, it's all of the above. And a lot of it is if you're going to do a good job, you're not necessarily building trails for you and your friends. You know, that's not necessarily yeah. the, the ticket buying uh, public that's coming. And, you know, I came into the job with a risk management background and the incident rate in the park was very high and the severity of those injuries was very high. And I was the successful candidate in getting the job because I had a, you know, a vision that the consequence of making a mistake shouldn't be that you may never walk again, or that you have some, you know, permanent head injury. To me, it was, it's a sport like any other. And if you fall down, you should, you know, bumps and bruises, get scraped up, maybe break a, you know, a bone, but you can come back to the thing that you love in a few months or a few weeks, whatever your situation is. So that was largely the lens that I applied to the mountain bike park. And, you know, over time, that involved a few things. So one of them at the, you know, back in the early day, it was just bike trails. There was no real definition of one from another. 
but they were really there was different styles. There were the free ride trails, which were the ones with the berms and their machine built and the jumps, and that's your sort of A lines of the world, which is sort of a ubiquitous name A line style trail for that type of riding. And then there were the kind of classic technical mountain bike trails, which is what everybody anywhere else in the world would be used to. So th- the first step I had was letting people know the difference between the two, because just because you are a confident black diamond technical trail rider doesn't mean that those skills transfer perfectly into black diamond free ride trail riding, uh, where you could get in over your head very quickly. So in, one of my first uh, kind of moves was to come up with an identification system that told people which style of trail they were on so that they could you know, identify the experience that they liked and what they were looking for and easily pick those trails off of our trail map and signboards and kind of uh, have the experience that they were looking for. So what, with your time, did you see a reduction in the, the injuries and the severity of injuries? I did, yeah. So that was one of the, the number one uh, goals because as a, as a commercial operation, you know, it's not viable if, you're, if your client base is you know, injuring themselves constantly and you're basically um, you know, scaring them out of the sport. So you know, the mandate was we need to bring this down but significantly and, and how can you do that? And you know, I, there was a few different concepts that we came up with and a lot of them sort of grew organically. And you know, from a trail design or uh, trail layout or trail auditing, an existing trail, you know, I over kind of my my 18 years of risk management and and you know bike park management came up with with kind of four factors of looking at a trail and and they are um, amplitude, uh, speed, um, frequency, and what's my fourth one? Gosh, now I'm on the spot and I can't remember my fourth one. Um, <laughs> it's like I'm doing giving you a test. It is. What's totally. the fourth criteria? <laughs> and I mean, it'll come to me in a second here. But amplitude is basically how high off the ground are you yeah. going to be? You know, is and that's whether you're balancing on something skinny and high, or whether you're dropping off rocks and roots and and or flying off jumps. The amplitude should be appropriate for the level of designated difficulty of the trail. Uh, I remember what it is. Sightline is the second one, and that really comes down to how far down the track can you actually see to see what's coming at you. And obviously on a World Cup downhill track, you can't see much beyond the front wheel of your bike because it's so steep and curvy. And and so your ability to adjust to what's coming at you is affected by how far you can see. Um, The speed factor is really about how steep the trail is and how many grade reversals you have that naturally will dump some of the speed. You know, when you when you um, have a piece of trail that, you know, maybe has a higher frequency of injury on it, you can look at it and go, well, what is the speed on here? And, and there's different tools that you can use, GPSs and, you know, watches, and now uh, give you that luxury to go, okay, well, how fast do you go if you just take your hands off the brakes and just flow down this trail? And what we were finding was problem areas generally had a speed that was too fast for the difficulty designation, which meant, okay, we need to redirect this trail and take some of the speed out of it to to make it uh, more enjoyable and more successful and maybe less braking bumps which just makes it a a more fun trail to ride anyway and then frequency is the final piece of that puzzle where it frequency is how how often is something coming under the front wheel of your bike and if you're brand new to mountain biking you can you know bounce and, and kind of bump along and adjust at a certain rate of speed of those things coming at you and again that world cup level athlete can adjust and jump over things they don't like to see or you know they can handle something basically constantly coming at them whereas that beginner or intermediate rider can't so by by kind of keeping your eye on that frequency of what's coming at them you can design a trail that is appropriate for you know an ability level and so those are sort of the lens that i applied and continue to apply when i look at things you know all the way down to you know to the eco challenge and what was coming at, at athletes who would be you know tired exhausted you know, um, carrying a load, um, you know, navigating while riding. Those are things that are totally different than riding a, you know, a lift service mountain bike park. But don't worry. I cursed your name. I cursed <laughs> your name many times out there. <laughs> well, I, you know what? It sounds kind of scientific. And I don't know if you have like this scientific brain. And I think if you're into risk management, you're obviously kind of evaluating things in that type of way. But I am listening to you. And the, what I actually think is, 
you're this person that is enabling people to have experiences that test you but also um, keep you safe, well, as, as safe as possible. Where do you think that design and construction and test and adventure originated from? I, I have no idea. I, like, I really think that it's it kind of stems from the, you know, that desire to be a guide and to show people experiences and show people these mountains and take them to places that they would never be able to get to on their own. And that's really what a guidebook is, is giving people that knowledge that you've gained so that they can go and have, you know, a positive experience that they're looking for. And I mean, it's the same with building bike trails, building freestyle uh, ski and snowboard parks. It's really about, you know, how can we make this as fun as possible? How can we balance out that risk? And how can we give people the ability to um, enjoy themselves, whether they're, you know, the quote unquote weekend warrior or whether they're, you know, yeah. the most elite athlete who's pushing the boundaries of the sport and they're adding, you know, absolutely new tricks or, you know, new speed times or whatever it is that, you know, allows them to push. And, and I really like, you know, being there for the athlete, you know, and of course I look mm-hmm. at them, and I go, wow, you know, if I could go back in time, I'd love to have done what these guys are doing, but it, it wasn't a thing. And those, you know, during my my growth in the you know seventies, eighties, nineties, but it's here now, and it's and it's amazing to be a part of it and to see these athletes push the boundaries of these sport, and and I I'm honored to get to be a part of it, and you know that's why I picked up a camera as well because I could see these things going down and go, wow, that was amazing, and and to be able to document the first ever switch quadruple cork, you know, on a snowboard was an amazing thing to say, yeah, I was there for that and, and, and have a sequence of photos that go with it. And, you know, I I love having that opportunity to do that kind of thing. And, and it's kind of my way to share it with the athletes. Your photos are awesome. Um, for anyone who's listening, I want to check them out right now. Um, you can follow Brian on Instagram, which is at Finestone Photo. And I, I love it when you show the nighttime photos and your description is like, you know, there's so much that happens in the nighttime. Things get distilled. It's very focused. And like it, it does, it shows a different world where there's almost like the darkness creates silence and people operate differently in that than in, in daylight. Absolutely. And that was one of the amazing things of Eco Challenge was it never stopped. And so that opportunity to see athletes and see the villagers and see the crews working and the kitchen staff and like sort of everybody that was there was in this kind of, it was almost like a vibrating guitar string, like ready for the next pluck when a team would come through. And so, you know, it was, it was amazing to feel that vibe. And then it would come in like a wave, like you would hear the the kids that were down by the water say you know at one of the villages and as the athletes came in you'd hear them cheering and roaring and singing and then it would just sort of sweep through the entire you know camp or checkpoint and and that excitement was um it was palpable like you you get swept up into it and, and go running with your camera in the dark stumbling and trying to you know capture that essence of those people you know, and their struggle as they came through and in, you know, all these different adverse conditions. And that was amazing. I, I, without a doubt, you know, when you, when you ask the dream job question, I look at the guys that were on the still photography team and go, there's a dream job. Like (laughs) if somebody, you know, were to reach out and tap me for another dream job that, you know, sign me up, I would do that anywhere in the world. That's amazing. And it's right. Like the kids in Fiji were indicating when the next team were coming. Absolutely. And it was, like I said, it was a wave that would kind of come roaring through the camp or through the checkpoint. And, and sometimes there would be two and three waves at once as, as people came through. And, you know, I would watch the athletes who would also perk up, like seeing you guys come through, uh, you know, just looking absolutely dog tired. And then, you know, the kids would be, you know, reaching out for high fives and singing, you know, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. And it was, you know, it's heartwarming to see everybody's shoulders kind of go from being kind of slumped and almost doubled over to standing up straight again and, you know, a bit more pep in your step. And, you know, that was super neat to see you guys feeding off of the energy that was being passed on to you by spectators. And, and these kids were, you know, it's over. They're not never going to see that again in their lives, but they'll continue to talk about it and tell their kids about it for probably generations in, in Fiji. Well, you would have seen that, you know, there'd be many times that you would have seen someone perceive that they are at their absolute limit. Uh, But then there's this external stimuli that can change it, which shows the power of the mind in endurance sports. I mean, when you you were, I think, the person that captured 
when Veronica from Team Costa Rica had her fall, came into the checkpoint, was absolutely destroyed, and then all of a sudden the locals are around dancing, singing, and it totally changes her state of being. Absolutely. Um, I mean, how much do you think these races are about the mind versus the physical? And that's an amazing question. I am not an endurance athlete, and I... I'm coming to endurance athletes from the what I would call session sports world, which is you know, skateboarding, you know, surfing, um, snowboarding, mountain biking. In some aspects, can be seen as a session sport. And and I'm now that I've taken on this role uh, with Eco Challenge and spending you know more time with my good friend Kevin again. I'm training <laughs> to be an endurance athlete, and I'm I'm actually learning how to trail run. And and it's one of those things where it, I. I'm experiencing it from the ground up and it is absolutely in the head as much as it is in the body, especially when your body's just about useless and you're trying to get it to do something that it's fighting back at you and doesn't really want to do. So without a doubt, and again, I'm at the, the absolute bottom of the learning curve as a, as a trail runner. And I didn't think it would be that hard to do. Um, the hardest part for me really is the guilt because I feel like I'm cheating on mountain biking when I could be going out for a ride and I'm putting on shoes and going for a run instead, which is, you know, and I, and I actually see people on the trail and hide because they will recognize me and they're like, well, aren't you the bike guy? I'm like, it's sort of strange seeing you <laughs> running. So yeah, it's, it's, a stra- it's a strange new relationship I have with sport. Well, firstly, you can do you can be many things. You don't have to just be the bike guy. You can be the trail guy. You can be the kayaker. You know, welcome to adventure racing. Multiple disciplines. <laughs> but you know what? Because you're coming to it from the beginning, I actually think your insights are really fascinating because I think sometimes after you've been doing it for like 10 years, you kind of forget what it's like at the beginning. An eco challenge, the fact that it is being broadcasted on such a popular popular channel like Amazon Prime, Everyday people who have never even known that this thing existed are being asked to think, could I test myself in that type of way? Yes. And one of my favorite um, info or not info, a quote sound bites from the show. And I can't remember whether it was on the Amazon X-ray or whether it was part of the actual show was towards the end of it when, you know, Nathan Fave, the guy's like the godfather of adventure racing says, you know, this may not be your world's toughest race. Your world's toughest race race may be a 5K or it may be, you know, just getting started on something. And that, that really rings true to me that, you know, my world's toughest race is learning this, you know, to trail run because it's never been something that um, I had the time to do because I was doing all these other things and it, it wasn't attracting me. And now I am. And I'll tell you what, like I can mountain bike forever and not really have a problem or have things break down um, but take me on a 10 K run. And after the eight K mark, I'd start to fall apart at the seam. So I, you know, absolutely. That is a, I, I'm living it, which is super exciting. And then th- the flip side of it is there is an entire generation, my 17 year old being the prime example that have never seen adventure racing, never exposed to it in his life. You know, it's been amazing getting back into, um, spending more time with Kevin because, you know, as we both, went from roommates and adventuring partners to, you know, career paths and marriages and kids. We, we went different directions and we didn't have as much time to spend with each other. Yeah, we would do New Year's Eve or Christmas dinner or, you know, a, a weekend surf trip here and there. But to be working with them again and, and training with them again is so awesome. And, and I'm, it makes me wish that I could rewind and, and have put in more effort to spend more time doing stuff with them during that, you know, gap in time. But I'm, I'm grateful to have, uh, have him back in my life the way I do. It's, it's terrific. It sounds like you're making up for it now. And, and the way I hear about these behind the scenes of like the race management team, for, for obviously Eco, but also for management teams of any adventure race around the world, is you are almost like your own adventure racing team. And, you know, I talk about to people, when you are in the, as a racer, the team of four, you become like family. And because you experience something so deeply and challenging, and it's just like the world of the four of you out there, um, the way you get to interconnect and what you learn about each other is very like, it's awesome. And it sounds like you guys go through the exact same process in the management team. Absolutely. We, we do the whole course, you know, and then some like we'll, We'll go out there and we'll, you know, smash around in the bush and then go, well, that didn't work. And then cut that piece out of it 
so that the race has better continuity or better flow. So we do our own adventure race, which is a, you know, throw a bunch of darts at a map and try to connect them and suffer through what that looks like. Yeah, at the end of it, we may get a chance to go down, you know, the, t- the clock's not ticking. We may not go through the night, although sometimes, you know, we miss our, our, you know, access or egress point and end up spending more time than we had planned. But we live the similar hardships and decision-making and are, are making those calls of, is this reasonable to put these people through this while we're out there? Well, let's test it out and see if we can walk across this river or if we get swept away. And so we live the adventure we have those same, you know, long, uh, monotonous trekking sections where we, you know, fill in the blanks and we, you know, it's team building and it makes us all, you know, learn the ins and outs of what we all like and dislike, uh, you know, in, about everything, food, music, you know, you name it. And we'll, we'll tear it apart to its, you know, finite, finite little pieces. Well, you were like a conductor out there. I mean, when you were doing that river section, which, you know, for those who haven't seen it, um, there, there was an eight-kilometre river section after the enormous climb up Vuvu Falls where a lot of teams succumb to, you know, early hypothermia or even quite, you know, down-the-line um, degrees of hypothermia. How did you guys go doing it really for the first time? Great question. And, and I will say that I wasn't there. I actually arrived in Fiji the day that they finished that uh, trek section to meet up with Kevin and to carry on with the, the mountain bike uh, course development. So all I heard were the yeah. aftermath stories of, you know, and, and Kevin tells it really well, where he was profoundly hypothermic. Uh, Ryan, who was on the team, had heat exhaustion. And then uh, Phil and Scott Flavelle were, you know, just waiting for the two of them to recover and doing, you know, swimming around in the pools like it was a pool party. And so, you know, their experience were so far opposite ends of the spectrum and somewhere in the middle that, you know, that's where we get the knowledge to say, you may want to bring a wetsuit. And I know that there was lots of talk about, well, why didn't people bring wetsuits? And that's where in those, in the, the letters that go to competitors in advance and in the guidebook, we drop those hints. And that's always based on, you know, yeah. our experience in, in coming up with the course. And that's everything from, you know, the tire style that we would, you know, recommend on your mountain bike and the you know, the tire pressure, you know, we recommend, you know, 28 PSI in the front and 31 in the back. And that's based on there's decisions that are made out there from, you know, near misses or crashes or whatever else. And, you know, when you, when you, when we talk about Veronica Bravo's incident uh, with team Costa Rica, she actually had a a situation where she crashed into a horse that was tethered, you know, beside the track and she hit the tethered horse. I don't know if she hit the horse or the rope, but that's what caused her to go over the handlebars and, and have her crash. And, and I distinctly remember writing in the, the notes that we sent out to the teams, this is a hazard that you are going to encounter on the mountain bike sections. And it's not like something you've ever seen before anywhere else that you've mountain biked in the world. This is a unique risk to Fiji. So make sure you have good quality lights on your bikes for riding at night. And, you know, then this situation happens. So yeah, we're, we're doing our best to live it the way that the competitors will. And we're carrying the exact same thing. So we carry, you know, if it's mandatory gear that has to be carried, so maybe it's, um, you know, all your rope ascending equipment and your PFD, uh, you know, and your bike shoes because you just got off a bike and there's nowhere to drop that. Uh, there's no camp yet. We're going to do the same thing. So we're going to carry the same amount of weight, the same awkward, you know, paddle or whatever it is through a glacier because that's what the teams are going to need to do. And we need to know the pros and cons of what that looks like and whether um, we should alter the course or, or have a different gear drop um, because that's, that's you know, super important that we get it right. Oh, I mean, I, I'm the type of competitor that I really am a, a highly tuned to cues, um, cues that are given before the race even begins and obviously cues throughout the course. Um, and so when I kind of got the updates in the competitor briefings, I was like, okay, they're saying this for a reason, like let's take note of it. And it was kind of my job in the team to thoroughly review the documents to extract those kind of little hints throughout it having suffered it or been through it, you, you, at least you, you're kind of empathizing with them and and setting them up for, you know, I know you can do it. Like it's, it's, it's all coming from a place of encouragement and, and, um, heart, you know, and the, the muddy mountain bike section on mountain bike leg two, as the prime example, I rode that section no less than four times and went through the exact same scenario by myself four times being the only target for the mosquitoes 
and I know exactly how terrible it was. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it could have gone in a bunch of different ways. Had it, had the sun come out and had we not had any sort of rain, it would have been hard tack. It would have been easy riding. Nobody would have, you know, had anything to talk about. It probably wouldn't even have made, you know, any sort of interest point in the show. Um, but the other flip side was it was going to rain potentially. And if it rained, it would be, uh, challenging, especially for the teams that came later on once it got all chewed up and, and kind of became a bit of a mudslide, which inevitably it did, as as we all know. I mean, context to, again, those who are listening, this is a section of the race that started as a really beautiful mountain bike ride. In fact, I remember coming out of that camp and just going, I feel so grateful to be a part of this. Like the views were epic. You're surrounded by mountains. You had some locals that came across. It, It was just a really scenic start to that leg. And then all of a sudden you, you carry a bike across um, some a stretch of water and then I remember intersecting a team that had just finished that leg. Um, I think it was a Swiss team and they just looked at us like they'd, they'd just been into battle. They were caked from head to toe with mud and they're like, we just spent the entire night doing that. You guys are in for a real treat. And, like, <laughs> we were kind of like, oh, yeah, it'll be okay. Like, we're just going to have to carry the bikes for a little bit. And, oh, my gosh, it – I mean, I'm a little human. Um, I'm under five foot and I just did not have the power to push my bike through that sticky mud for as much as the guys did. And like I was caked from every every part of me was just full of mud. And then we saw a bunch of teams and sometimes we'd just, you'd try and like, you'd try and ride whenever you could, even if you couldn't pedal, like you'd kind of just stick your legs out and just go, at least if I can kind of just ride down this little descent, but then invariably you'd crush because there was so much sticky mud. I mean, it's amazing how long you persist at something, wanting it to be a certain way. When the reality was, it almost is like you should have just succumbed to the reality, like put your bike over your head and just plow. Yeah, like I think that the the tool in hindsight that would have been the most useful to have there would have been either a butter knife or a spoon. Because, I mean, my strategy was yeah. uh, take, take my machete out and cut a, a stick to the right length, kind of sharpen the end of it and use it to kind of poke the mud out so that the wheels would at least keep spinning. And then eventually, you know, every once in a yeah. while, kind of um, like scrape the, the tire down so it had the clearance to make it through the frame, you know, and I think that a spoon or a butter knife would have been the, the ticket for that job. So you know, I think from now on in, in my, in my mountain bike pack, I will keep one or both of those tools accessible so that if I ever encounter that again, I have a strategy that works. I mean, obviously you, you spend a bit of time and, you know, probably can't talk too much about it, but you obviously went and did a early recce of the the course that's hopefully going to happen next year in 2021 in Patagonia. What do you think about that place? I mean, what I think about it is it it is one of the most miraculous places on earth. It is, you know, it's unbelievable. It's like everything gets turned up. The wind gets turned up. The colors get turned up. The steepness gets turned up. You know, it's nothing like I live in the mountains and I spend all my days in the mountains and this takes the mountains and is and distills it into an, a concentrated version of itself. Um, probably just because South America is so skinny down at that end of it, and you're so close to Antarctica that you know the weather, the winds. You're you know it's from ocean to sky. Like it's just a unbelievable place. The wildlife there hasn't seen the volume of humans that maybe it has you know around where I live. So you know you, you stumble onto the Wanako and and suddenly there's a herd of Wanako surrounding you and they're staring at you trying to figure out what you are and you know we had a couple of conversations as we were working our way through these remote valleys and sort of saying you know like are we the first you know you know non-indigenous people to ever come through this valley and it's entirely possible like we didn't see signs of humanity you know and this is would go on for days and days and we were you know that's a pretty amazing feeling and and also a bit humbling like i definitely had a couple of um you know i woke up with almost like an anxiety situation kind of going like we're way out here like what if something goes wrong you know a helicopter can't just fly in and pick you up here you know this is going to require these guys that i'm working with to build a stretcher and carry me a long way so again the risk management bells were going off in my head that like you are you're not in your own backyard anymore you're somewhere totally different and that patagonia is that like everywhere and and it was amazing And, and we this race will be the new world's toughest race. Like there's no doubt in my mind, it will be a new set of challenges. It will be harder. The, the things that were 
scary in Fiji may not be here, but there'll be other things that are even scarier. Like it's, it's going to be absolutely incredible. And, and I just cannot wait to get back down there and continue with the, you know, the coursework that we had started. And then, you know, the, that feeling of being able to share that once the athletes, you know, show up and get to experience it themselves. And, you know, I, I didn't know the adventure racing world that much. So I didn't have, you know, a vested interest in all the players. I hadn't really been following it, but I certainly do now, you know, I know so many of the teams I'm communicating with them. I'm rooting for them and to, to be able to produce a new race course that is going to challenge them and provide them with, you know, lifetime, you know, memories is amazing. And and the folks down there that we're working with um, are incredible. So it's going to be, uh, it's I can't even say enough good things about it. it it's incredible place. How how like like much time do you spend out there like constructing the course? And it sounds like you have local teams that you're working with as well. But like physically, like are you we talking about like weeks that you're spending on the course itself? Yeah, m- more than that. It's months. So we go down and we do yeah. an initial recon to see if it's even viable in that place. Then we do a theoretical. Uh, course that was drawn up on you know through google earth and and looking at lots of maps and that's where you know kevin and scott are the geniuses behind that and then we do what we call ground truthing where we go back with all the right equipment and we test it out and we ground truth that um a ground truth survey the course that they laid out and see if it's viable and that's where we you know oh that's not going to work this isn't going to work that's not going to you know it's not fair to go from you know sitting on like you have said in other podcasts you just want to get onto your feet because you've been sitting on your butt on the water for too long. Yeah. And, and we want to give you that. We want to make it so that you're sitting, you're standing, you're paddling, you're changing, you know, body position. And that it's not just, you know, from one sport to the next, to the next, and then it's over. It's that, that you may revisit a few of them again and again, and you never really know what's coming. So that those factor in as well. And that takes time. So, you know, it'll take us a couple months on the ground of ground truthing. And then, we'll distill it down to the course we're happy with and then we'll go back and retest some sections to just make sure that we have some timelines because what we'll do is we'll run that um sections of course at what we consider as close to race pace as we can and then we'll have to add you know time for teams that we think might be slower and we'll have to subtract 25 percent for the lunatics that are you know that much fitter than we are and and can do it that much faster and then we kind of come up with a, a best timeline of when sections of the course will be open and when we'll have to close them. And that sort of becomes the plan for the race. And we, yeah. and we sort of build around that. And, you know, it's amazing that, that we can, you know, our, our level of accuracy on in Fiji was pretty close. Like we, we said, you know, teams would finish in really? X number of days to X number of days, you know, obviously the cutoffs will keep people moving, but uh, the accuracy from that blew me away as someone that was new to the, you know, the race management field. I, I was, learning and, and in awe constantly. Were you surprised with how many teams finished uh, in Fiji? Without a doubt. You know, having lived it on the ground, you know, we were like, gosh, is this going to be too hard? Like, are we going to only have a few teams complete this? But we, we failed to take into account the evolution of adventure racing and athletes in the last 17 years and just how much better the gear is, how much better training is, how much more understanding yeah. there is of the ability to suffer and move on. And as a result, we were, yeah, I would say pleasantly surprised that that many teams managed to, to get it done, which is great. But what that also means is it's going to be harder next time because they're going to try to whittle that down and, yeah. and have a smaller percentage of people, you know, make it to that finish line. Do you know what? That's a really great way of saying it because I, I said that too um, because I think it is quite surprising that a team that has no experience really, you know, is able to finish the world's toughest race. Uh, and obviously, like, things can go w- work in your favour and it can be an amazing thing and you get there with persistence and that's just, I think, mental fortitude uh, has improved because I think there, there's more of an appetite to push yourself out of your comfort zone than perhaps there would have been, you know, 15, 20 years ago because there are more opportunities to do it. It's not seen as so niche to go and do an ultra marathon. Um, I remember when I started ultramarathon running, like I was often one of the only women on the start line of a race or one of very few percentages of people doing a multi-stage ultra. But now, like the number of people who want to do it and the percentage of women who are doing it has increased significantly. 
Absolutely. And I think the age of social media and the ability to see this stuff on the internet and meet someone who's actually done this, you, what you realize is that, oh, this person's a human just like I am. They burp, they fart, they, you know, yawn, they have bad breath. And you kind of go, well, that's me. Like, they're not superheroes. They're, they're just regular people that have a goal and they've worked towards achieving this goal. And that if, if I set a goal, I can work towards achieving it as well. And I remember Kevin saying that, you know, his calculation was that if you started on that Eco Challenge Fiji race, you could sleep six hours a night and still make it through the entire course yeah, as long as you never made a mistake. And it's like, okay, well, there's the piece that's <laughs> impossible because everyone's going to make mistakes, navigational errors, you know, f- you know, someone's going to have to stop and wrap a foot or, or have an injury or whatever, uh, or gear malfunction on a mountain bike. But theoretically, the timeline of how fast, you know, we traveled and, and a human can travel youth could do that race sleeping six hours a night, which kind of sounds more like a holiday than an adventure race. But, you know, then add that factor in of mistakes and navigation errors and fatigue. And it, you know, kind of the needle scratches right off the record and it's kind of anyone's game. Fingers crossed that um, I guess the challenges that we're having with COVID-19 right now and and the challenges with border access, um, yeah, I I think there's a lot of people around the world right now just crossing their fingers that it can happen, you know, next year. Uh, Absolutely. That that is the, the one thing that we're all struggling against is that when will it happen? How will it happen? How will it unfold? And I think that you know, fortunately, people are starting to figure out those, you know, travel strategies and ways to keep people safe. And and it's not worth it if we're going to expose people to, you know, potentially life-changing illness or injury. So I hope that the world kind of catches up to itself and finds a way to make it work because, gosh, it was so fun in Fiji and I'd really like to do it again in Patagonia with everyone. Yeah. I actually think the world needs it. Like the world is so separated right now, um, dealing with like very location-specific situations. Um, but I think what watching that show back on Amazon Prime reminded you of like the power of like people coming together. You know, I want to finish this conversation by actually talking about I guess the new adventure that you and Finn embarked on during COVID, um, which was the hunt for stones which is you know I love the name fine space stones minerals tell me how you guys got into hunting for stones uh, and and where it is right now <laughs> that's it's kind of funny it, basically Finn was all of his courses went online during that latter part of the of the school springtime session so one of the courses he was taking was a, a geography earth sciences course and one of the exercises was, you know, learn about the geology where you live, you know, go out and look at the rocks, go out and, you know, figure out what it is. Are you living on igneous rock? Are you living on sedimentary rock? So that's what we were doing. And um, within a kilometer of our house. So it was, you know, we were still in, you know, fairly tight lockdown. It wasn't full on quarantine by that point, because I had come back from South America, had done my two weeks of quarantine, and then we were able to venture out. So we were sort of poking around and what we discovered was that there's actually amazing crystal forms that grow in the volcanic rock all around Whistler. And we discovered some of them literally at the end of our, of our road. And it just became this sort of fascination uh, and distraction while there wasn't a lot of other things going on. Because this is springtime. It wasn't really bike season yet, so we couldn't go out and ride. There was no more snow season because the, the, the lifts were all closed down. So activity-wise, we were a little bit limited on, on what we could do. And this, you know, crystal hunting thing kind of got under our skin. And we were spending five or six hours a day, every single day, out, you know, foraging around in the mountain right behind our house and, and came up with some incredible stuff. And, and then it was, well, what's this? And why does it exist? And why is there sparkly green stuff on it? So we suddenly became, you know, geology students together and... It was crazy what we found. And now it's sort of, now we're looking at other places that we go and and seeing, okay, if we went on a bike trip to this place, maybe we could also spend a day, you know, a rest day foraging around for whatever the mineral is that's, you know, ubiquitous in that area. And so it's amazing how it just adds another layer of interest to what's under the ground, you know, that you're riding or running or skiing on top of. And it's yeah it's amazing and I, I i love learning i love being on a learning curve and whether that's trail running or geology i'm 
I'm like a kid always hungry for new knowledge. And it's, it's fun to do those journeys with Finn because we've been discovering new things together our, our, you know, for his entire life, which is, which is a treat as a parent. Well, you know, I have shared a lot of your posts to my husband. I'm like, we should do this with Harry. Look at this. This is really cool. And I've like gone back pretty far and I like I really admire uh, and respect how you and Finn um, work together and how you seem to like genuinely have discovered things. And this is an extension of that. And, you know, people have got to check it out because some of the stuff that you guys have found it's fine underscore stone underscore minerals. And you've described it as self-propelled crystal hunting by foot, bike, paddleboard and raft. And the stones that you've got are, are epic. Like who would have just thought that they'd be all under the ground like that? Oh, exactly. That, that's one of the things where it suddenly became this, you know, drive to go and outdo what you've already done. Like anything else, we're competitive. So he finds one big one. I want to find a bigger one. He finds a clear one. I want to find a clearer one. So, you know, you can take the athletics out of it and we're still competitive as heck with each other. That's just, that's who we are and how we function. But yeah, it blows us away what we've been able to discover. And, you know, if you're discovering things and it's now opened up, okay, he's 17 years old. What's he going to do after sport? Because you have to have a plan. And now he's looking at, you know, what is there in earth sciences? What is, what is geology? What are the university courses that you could take that would involve that and you know i love that i love that it ignited a, a new passion <clears throat> and a passion pardon me that doesn't just involve throwing yourself off things which is great because you can do that kind of thing for the rest of your life and you know once again ironically kevin hotter's dad you know it was a uh, he passed away recently but he was a amazing geologist who had surveyed and done tons of the geology in this area and so kevin through osmosis as his kid you know, knows a bunch about the geology and we're often on adventures and I, and I'll ask him like, what would Bob Hodder think of this? And, you know, we'll get into a discussion about his dad, which is super cool because, you know, the geology bug has now been passed down to my son, you know, and it'd be cool yeah. if he took it and did something, you know, unique with it. And, and if not, and it's just a pastime, what an amazing pastime and thing to do in a self-propelled way. Well, and also like it's slowing down a bit too. You know, he does a lot of like really yang-based activities, like there's fire, you know, high adrenaline. And I obviously I know I'm sure he's got adrenaline in everything that he does, but it is, it's slower. It's more, you know, meticulous. You know, it's looking at the ground more than kind of looking out to the, the sky in a sense. And I've got to say like, so I know that you like the quartz crystal, but I love the amethyst. And I think that it's so, they're really, really beautiful. And I think the fact that you talk about, you know, it's about the hunt and the brush with discovery versus the actual, you know, let's get the end objective of just having this thing. And I have discussed a lot on this podcast that if 2020 has taught me anything, it said, let's reevaluate what it really truly means to create a goal. And the end state isn't everything. It's actually the process. It's the everyday. It's the in-between. It's what we might have considered even to be the mundane in the past. Absolutely. It's, it's the, the hunt, the journey, and sometimes you come back with nothing and that, that is okay. Like we are hundred percent okay with that. It's nice if you've had a few nothings to find a something because the endorphin release that you get <laughs> from finding is, is amazing, but it's the, the goal is not necessarily the end result. The goal is being together, being outside, moving through the terrain and experiencing the hunt, the the journey. And that is, if I can keep doing that for the rest of my life, regardless of whether it's, you know, on a paddleboard, in a boat, on a bike, mm. on foot, uh, that will make me a happy person. And there are some old um, French guys from Chamonix that we, we see every day on the mountain skiing and they go crystal hunting in our mountains here because that's what they did back home. And I look at them and go, if I'm 80 something and I'm still doing this stuff and you know, walking with ski poles in the mountains and hunting for crystals, that is a good place to be in your 80s. Yeah, it totally is. And it's also about how do I sustain, my, how do I keep doing the things that I love, even if they're a little bit exposed to risk, but how do I sustain myself through that so I'm still doing it when I'm 80? Absolutely. And I, I'm a firm believer with the recovery that I had to deal with, that motion is lotion. And that if you keep doing things, you you keep everything working, keep it all moving properly, and that will you know perpetuate that into the future. 
it's really as soon as you stop is when the rust kicks in and you know that's where you have to come back from whatever it is and sedentary lifestyle is not going to work for the fine stones i can tell you that much yeah, well, I mean, I love that. And I've got to say, a, a new goal for me is to join the Finestones with my husband and my son and go on like uh, an adventure with you guys, sourcing some stones whilst being on mountain bikes and maybe on your wooden paddleboard. We would love to have you guys, whether that's here in Whistler, if you make it over here once travel opens up or over in Australia, because we uh, have relatives that are just down the road from you guys. So we can do it on either side of the world, which is pretty exciting. It's pretty cool. I mean, thank you so much for your time. I know it's, it's actually a leap of faith to go on someone's podcast that you don't know a huge amount and, and share your story. And I just, I really, really encourage the people that have listened to this conversation to kind of check you out uh, via your socials because your storytelling is epic. Your photos, you know, say so much as well. And I've actually found it quite uh, inspiring to, to watch the journey of you and Finn and it's just open my eyes and my mind up to different things that we can do together that are fun but also kind of like enhances that bond that you have thank you sam that means a lot it's it's an honor to have been asked to do this kind of thing because i don't look at myself as being as interesting as many of your other guests but you you make me feel like i belong and i really appreciate that and i hope people get something from what i have to say So there you have it, folks. Brian Finestone. Motion is lotion. As soon as you stop, the rust kicks in. And this certainly is a man that is in movement and in motion. And I loved hearing his story. Now, don't forget, you can check out his details uh, via the show notes or his social media channels that you can follow. I hope you also liked a bit of the sneak peek information on the world's toughest race in Patagonia that will happen at some point down the track. And don't forget, if you like this conversation, found it to be of value, uh, just subscribe to the podcast so you can get the next episodes into your um, podcasting platform, whatever you use. And don't forget, I hope that you are happy, safe and well wherever you are. Keep your chin up, keep smiling and look forward to chatting to you again next time.